The Drum Candy Podcast is brought to you by Drum Factory Direct. What is up, everyone? Welcome into episode one of season two of the Drum Candy Podcast. This is your host, Mike Dawson. I'm coming to you from Drum Factor Direct in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. You might notice things look a little bit differently here. I finally got my office studio set up with proper cameras and lighting. Hopefully it looks cool. And then multi-cameras. So we're going to be, you know, this, this show is evolving and changing. So the new format this, this season is more of a variety show. Um, I wanted to get away from long-form interviews. We're still going to have guests on every week, but I wanted to be able to bring in, you know, just more topics, more, more information about gear, some lesson stuff, some product announcements. Still going to go to Hawthorne and hang out with him. So hopefully um, you'll you'll dig the new format. Let us know. Um, Drum Candy Podcast at Gmail is our new contact info. Um, that's where you can send listener questions, which I want anyone who has any questions about anything gear-related, drumming-related, music industry-related, shoot them over at drumcandypodcast at gmail.com. Also, if you want to be featured as the intro beat, shoot that over again, a download link of a video of yourself playing at uh, drumcandypodcast at gmail.com. And if you could also can include just a short video of you explaining what's happening in the beat. Uh, what gear you're using or what you're playing just anything just kind of i want this to be a community effort so you know get yourself featured include your website your social media all that stuff again so get your intro beats and your listener questions it's going to be an integral part of the show over to drumcandypodcast at gmail.com now speaking of which the beat you just heard was submitted by mike malone mike malone is a fantastic drummer so make sure you're following him if you're not already on social media he posts a lot of great videos great looking videos great sounds great playing he's also a regular participant of the drum club project which is a community initiative that i created along with ben hilziger of big fat snare drum to basically what we do is we put out a backing track or a loop or something once a month anyone who wants to participate downloads the link just records himself playing to it you can remix it, do whatever. And then once a month, we all get together on Zoom and check out what everyone did. Ask, you know, just share our ideas behind it, the gear we used, all the nerdy stuff. So if you're not part of that, be on the lookout. Make sure you follow Big Fat Snare Drum and Drum Factory Direct. That's where we make the announcements for that. So anyway, Mike is, you know, he's been participating in that since we started it. This was one of his beats. So I'm gonna let him explain a little bit about what was happening. Hey, my name is Mike Malone. I'm out of Oshkosh, Wisconsin, and thanks for letting me be a part of this episode of the Drum Candy Podcast. My take on this track was inspired by some of my favorite modern groove drummers, like Nate Smith and Mark Juliana. For this recording, I'm using a Gretsch Renown kit with a 12 by 8 inch rack tom, 16 by 16 inch floor tom, and a 22 inch bass drum that I recently cut down from 18 inches deep to 14 inches. The snare drum is a 14 by 6.5 black brass from Drum Supply House, and the cymbals are Bosphorus 15-inch groove hats, 20-inch trash crash, and a stack ring percussion 12-inch versus stack. Thanks for listening. 
All right. Thanks again, Mike, for submitting that beat. And if you want to get your beat featured on the show, send it over to drumcandypodcast at gmail.com. All right. What else, what are we going to do in this show moving forward? It's going to be a bunch of segments. Um, so we're going to have – I'm going to kind of go through all my outline here for you. So I'm, every episode I want to have some news, some different announcements, some new records that might have been released just to kind of keep you know keep us all informed on what's happening in our community. I'm going to have a main feature topic, which will be – mainly about gear we're going to spend a lot of time over probably the next couple months or so just talking about different attributes of a snare drum and i've got all the cameras set up so i can demo everything so we got one of those here for you this week Uh, we're going to have an interview segment every episode this week we've got uh, we actually it's the first time i've interviewed two people um, stella mosgawa of the great band warpaint she has a project called belief an electronic project with Brian Collin, a.k.a. BoomBip. So I've got both of them to talk about electronic music production. We'll talk more about that in a minute. And then I also want to include a lesson, some sort of educational thing, whether from myself or Tom Went will be uh, popping in for that. Maybe some other guests will come in. And I definitely want to keep going over to Hawthorne's Drum Shop, checking out some different vintage drums, and just getting some knowledge base on... You know, how to identify different vintage things, what to look for when you're buying or selling, all that kind of stuff. So we're going to keep that happening. I'm also, like I said before, listener questions. I feel like that's an important segment that I've been missing, which I think I originally intended of having that be in the show from episode one. But I kind of dropped the ball on that. So, again, if you have any questions about anything drum related or or music-related or gear-related, shoot them over to drumcandypodcast at gmail.com. And then I'm also going to wrap up each episode with a pick of the week from something at the Drum Factory Direct Warehouse, a product or something that you might not be aware of that you might want to check out. So that's the new format. Uh, Hopefully you dig it. Um, It'll get more, hopefully I'll get more comfortable doing this speaking to the camera thing as we go along and all this new gear. I've got camera switchers and you know, all kinds of stuff here that's, you know, just getting used to it. So bear with me. Hope you dig it. So let's get into some news. All right. First bit of news here. There are currently two GoFundMe campaigns going on to help with some medical expenses for two um, really important members of the drum community. You've got Jeremy Berman at Q Drum. If you go over to Q Drum's Instagram page, you can get the link to that. He's dealing with some some cancer treatment that's keeping him from working or building drums so anything you can do to help him out go over there and check that out and also john at revolution drum similar thing he's going through some cancer treatment so two two great guys in the industry if you have anything you can spare if you want to help out or spread the word um, they're both on gofundme next bit of news was a bit of surprise i got this email um august 3rd so just a little over a little over a week ago pete lockett the great uh, percussionist instrumentalist he announces his full retirement he is no longer performing touring making any records anything which i found really surprised i saw him at pasic last fall and he you know he performed great but you know he's moving on to another chapter in his life so that was quite surprising news he's going to be shutting down all the social medias as well um, hopefully his book is still available it is called indian rhythms for drum set I did a lot of the engraving of the music for that, um, and or editing. I don't remember. I think I edited. I think I just I edited all of it, 
Uh, really, really fantastic book, Indian Rhythms for Drum Set. I think it's on Hudson Music. Hopefully that's still available. Um, good luck to you, Pete. All right, now I've got some some new albums that I, that I wanted to make you aware of if you're not um, aware of yet. First of all, the Mars Volta surprised me. Maybe I just wasn't paying attention with a new single, and they've got a new album scheduled to come out with a new drummer. Name His name is Willie Rodriguez, and he is a Latin Grammy-winning drummer, percussionist, and band leader. He's from Puerto Rico. He went to Berkeley College of Music. He got a master's degree from the New England Conservatory. Um, he's been playing with a bunch of just huge jazz artists over the years so it looks like now the Mars Volta have a um a jazz drummer in the band so we'll, I'm really I don't know much more about it there wasn't really any other info that I could find um hopefully we'll we'll get to see him play with the Mars Volta live soon our next up um a new album by the great New York jazz drummer Billy Drummond it's called Valse Sinistre that's out now it's his first release as a leader since 1996 so if you want some just really fantastic, you know, acoustic jazz, go check that out. That is Billy Drummond's record, Valse Sinistre. Um, all right, moving on to the next one. Oh, Antonio Sanchez, the great, great drummer, Antonio Sanchez. He was guest on one of the early episodes, maybe four or five. His, um, his follow-up record, Bad Ombre Volume 2, is out which features a lot of uh, collaborations with vocalists and he just put out a single with kimbra called suspended animation if you haven't checked out bad ombre volume 2 highly recommended it's more kind of soundtrack experimental electronic music with acoustic drums very cool the first one the first record uh, bad ombre volume 1 is also fantastic so that's it's definitely a slight departure from his kind of more traditional jazz playing that he's done but it falls right in line with the work that he did with um birdman you know improvising drum solos for soundtracks so it's more of a more in that world definitely go check it out bad ombre volume two vibraphonist sasha berliner has a new record out this is her second record it is called onyx sasha is a fantastic musician player composer very creative very forward thinking with the instrument and her approach to the ensemble and on drums she's got the great marcus gilmore so check out this record this is some very fresh modern music um her name is sasha berliner the record is called onyx um, and marcus gilmore's on drums it's really a great listen check that one out and then lastly there's a duo project by trumpeter wadada leo smith it's called the emerald duets and he is playing with he's improvising and playing different compositions with drummers so it's trumpet and drums the first there's a i think it's a five disc set the first disc has firona kaloff who's a drummer i am not familiar with i look forward to getting to know his playing more the second disc has the great avant-garde drummer andrew surreal third disc has the great european drummer han benick and then the fourth and fifth disc feature the modern jazz legend jack dijonette so if you want to check out some interesting improvised music with trumpet and drums check out wadada leo smith the emerald duets all right last bit of news drum factory direct just got a shipment of brass hoops if you've been listening to the show early on we was talking about how much of an improvement to your snare drum sound a set of brass hoops can be we quickly sold out and then supply chain issues they were just unavailable for a long time we just got a batch of them in um, the catch is this is it. So when these are gone, 
for the foreseeable future, they're going to be gone. So we have sets. They're all they're all 14 inches with 10 lugs, and you have and you get the top and the bottom as a set. We have chrome over brass, and we have nickel over brass, and I believe there is some black nickel over brass. So make sure you go over to drumfactorydirect.com soon if you want to get a set because again, once they're gone, they're gone. And as I said earlier in the show, that's the easiest way to make your snare drum sound very expensive with a nice set of brass hoops. Go check them out at drumfactordirect.com. All right, now it's time to shift into our main topic. So for the next few episodes, it might end up being quite a few episodes, we're going to dig into what I'm calling everything you need to know about snare drums. And we're going to start this week with what does the diameter of a snare drum actually do? I think the easy, the easy hypothesis is It'll make the pitch higher. A 12-inch drum will be higher pitched than a 15-inch drum. But what I'm investigating, and we'll check it out in this, this video I made, is how does the tone change if you tune a 12, a 13, a 14, and a 15-inch drum identically, top heads and bottom heads, the exact same frequencies? What's the tone? What's the sustain? What's the, the feel? That's the part that doesn't translate to video, is what does it feel like? when you play a 12 tuned one way versus a 15 tuned exact same, you know, exact same tension. What does it feel like? Um, so my theory, which is what I wanted to test with this, was that a if you like a high pitch drum, but you don't want it to feel super stiff, then go with a very small drum and tune it a little bit lower. You'll get that pitch, but you'll get the nice soft feel. Conversely, if you like the feel of a tight drum, but you want a lower pitch, use a 15 or something like that, a 14 or a 15, because you can get a lower note, but you can get you know the tighter rebound if that's what you desire. So in this video, I have four, one, two, three, four, four different um, drums here. Uh, let me just show you what we've got. So if I went a 12, a 13, a 14, and a 15. All wood shell drums. I couldn't do a perfect, you know, replica of every drum that I don't have that available. But I did. I did wood shell drums. Twelve is this seven by twelve beach. It's a solid shell, stave shell drum uh, by Solid Solid Drums over in Switzerland. So that's a twelve. We have a thirteen which is a steam bent cherry drum that Bruce Hagwood at RBH drums made. That's a six by 13 cherry. For the 14, I have this six and a half steam bent flame birch shell that GMS made. So that's our 14. And then unfortunately I don't have a solid shell 15. I have this, this is a ply shell mahogany that Bucks County Drums made. This is a 15. It is a five and a half by 15. So those are our four sample drums. Um, what I did was I tuned them all to my personal preference of a starting point, which is C sharp on top, F sharp on the bottom. So it's a fourth between them. I put the exact same drum heads on every drum. so. They all have have this. This is a Drum Factory Direct um, 
It's a DH004. It's a single ply coated. It's equivalent to a Evans G1 uh, Remo Ambassador or a Aquarian Texture coated. I believe it's a 10 mil film with a coating. So exact same head on all four drums. I tuned them all to the exact same frequency, top and bottom, and then I just played the same same beat each time. And then I took the batter head up a third, so I went up to an E and did another playthrough. And then I squeaked out the super high note of a G on three drums, but not on the 15. So uh, let's just check it out. So let's let's just watch the experiment, and then I'll share some more thoughts afterwards. Check it out here. So we're going to examine four different drums. What does the diameter of a snare drum actually do? All right, first up, we're going to try this. This is a 7x12, the 12-inch drum. This is a solid beach drum by Solid Drums over in Switzerland. I have it tuned C-sharp on top, F-sharp on the bottom. All these drums are going to be starting out that way. So let's hear what the 12-inch drum sounds tuned like this. Wide open, no muffling. Um, check it out. Some quick observations at this tuning with this 12-inch drum. It feels very soft, even though it's tuned to what I would consider medium or maybe even medium-high on some of the other drums. It feels more like a medium-low kind of vibe, real soft and cushy under the sticks. All right, now let's take it up a third. We're going to take the 12-inch drum here up a minor third to an E on top. I'm not going to touch the bottom unless I feel like I have to. Let's just see what we get when we take this up a minor third. All right, observations, even with that little bit of adjustment, I think I might have did like a quarter turn on each lug to get it up to that. It Now it sounds like a higher drum to me, like what a 12-inch drum should sound like, even though there's still, it's not super tight. It still feels nice and soft. So that's an observation with this 12-inch drum is you can get that high kind of popping sound without having to put a ton of tension on the drum to make it feel hard. It still feels kind of soft and comfortable. Um, let's see if we can squeeze another third out of it and see what happens. All right, I was able to get another third out of it, so now the batter head is G, G4, and then actually the bottom head is lower than the top now. Let's see what we get. So it's G over F sharp. I mean, it's definitely moved into special effects territory very quickly, though. So within just a couple, I mean, it might have been a total of 
half, three quarter of a turn to go from what I thought was a like a pretty fat, meaty lower sound to this like special effects side drum sound. So that's the 12. All right, now we've stepped up to the 13 inch drum. This is a six by 13 solid cherry shell. Um, again, I have it tuned just like we started with the 12. It is C sharp over F sharp, which is my starting point with every drum. Let's see how it sounds. All right, some quick observations here with the 13 inch drum at the C sharp over F, it feels tighter under the stick. It feels more kind of where I would put a drum to start. Whereas the 12 felt soft and cushy. This kind of feels more medium, medium high, um, but still a lot of nice overtones. So let's crank it up a third and see what we get. All right, I took the batter head up about a half a turn it ended up being. So it's a E over F sharp. Um, let's see what it sounds like. All right, I think similar to the 12, once I took it up to this pitch, it started to become more of, I think of like head voice for a snare drum, where you're getting a lot more attack, losing some body. But, you know, it still feels nice and articulate. Let's take it up higher. Let's take it up to the G and see what we get. Well, that's about as high as this drum I think should ever go. It might even be too high for most situations. It's pretty choked out. It's, you know, maxed out, I would say. Um, if you dig that sound, it might be a good special effect sound. It might be a good main sound if that's your vibe. To me, it's starting to feel a little stiff, a little rigid. I'm wanting to hear more shell, and it's not quite giving it to me at that tension. I would use the 12 for that super high sound so I could get a little less tension on the head, still get some playability, but get that nice pop and crack. All right, that's the 13. Let's move on to the 14. All right, now it's time for the 14-inch drum. This is a 6.5 by 14 steam-bent solid birch. Same place we started with the others, C-sharp over F-sharp. Let's see what we get. All right, some quick observations with this 14-inch drum tuned here. This feels like it has more body, more power. Uh, feels just more like a normal starting point for a snare drum for me. It's got depth, it's got power, it's got articulation. That's why I always start at C-sharp over F-sharp. 
on 14 inch drums. It's like the best, the happy medium between tight and crispy and kind of just some fat and punchiness. Let's crank it up a bit to the E over F sharp and see what we get. Some observations with the 14 tuned up to the E. This feels like as high as this drum comfortably wants to go. It's really, that would say that's the, the tightest sound that this particular drum, this and probably most 14 inch drums, that feels like it's at the breaking point. But let's just try it and go a little bit further, see what happens. Let's try to take it up to the G. I'm honestly surprised how much body this 14-inch drum actually maintains at that high of a tuning, but it's certainly at the absolute max. I don't know that I could even get much higher of a pitch out of this batter head. So it's kind of, I don't know, choose your, choose your option. If you really love that super high sound, but you want some depth, some fatness out of it, maybe a 14 cranked sky heavens. But if you want that high pitched sound, but maybe you want the, the drum to be a little bit more open, then maybe go for the 13 or even the 12. Uh, let's shift over to the big guy, the 15. All right, for our biggest drum, this is a 15 inch, this is actually a plywood mahogany drum. The others were solid shells, so it's not a 100% fair comparison, but it's still, it's a 15 inch wood drum. I've got it tuned C sharp over F sharp. I can tell you already just getting this thing initially tuned. Uh, this, this might be the upper register for this drum already, but let's take a listen. Yeah, so this drum, this 15-inch drum tuned, this medium tuning, C-sharp over F-sharp, that feels kind of like the drum might be its, at its highest point. Um, it feels kind of tighter, a little bit more punchy. Um, to be honest, when I use this drum, it's almost always tuned much, much lower. But let's see what happens if we try to take it up to the E. All right, it took quite a bit of muscle to try to get this thing up to the E, but we made it. Um, this is absolutely as high as this drum will go. It's probably well beyond the comfortable range. There's no way we would get the G out of it. But let's see what we get here with the E, the super high E.
It's not necessarily where I would, you know, choose to put this drum, but it has a, a lot of pop and a lot of power. And I think because the head is so tight, it's also controlled. There's not a lot of overtones, probably less ring to my ears. I have to check the recording. Less um, sustain and ring coming out of this drum tuned up to the E versus the 12 or the 13. Just a thought. Again, I use 15s primarily for like lower register stuff that the other drums just can't, can't get down to. But that's it. That's the 15-inch drum. You know what? Let's take a listen to all four of them back to back. I'm just going to splice the groove at each tuning. So we're going to start with C sharp. You're going to hear all four drums. E, all four drums. And then we go to the G. You're only going to hear the 12, 13, and the 14. Check them out. Should explain the gear that I recorded with for that demo. It's just three mics. It's a Beta, a Shure Beta 52A bass drum mic, um, just outside the front head, like an inch off center. It's not inside the drum. I have a what is that? Austrian Audio CC8 overhead, which is like three feet directly above the center of the snare drum, pointing straight down. And then for the snare drum mic. I opted to put it on the side of the shell. So let me hold up this drum here. You can see this. So the mic is, you know, two inches away from the shell, aimed right, you know, roughly at the middle or maybe slightly below middle of the shell. Why'd I do that? Uh, I did that because I didn't want to just be capturing the drum head. I wanted to just capture the whole drum as best as I could with one mic. So that's, that's the, the microphones for this recording. Mixing-wise, just typical mixing to get rid of some low-mid buildup that's just not part of the natural sound. Tiny little bit of high shelf to just add some crispiness. And then wherever I would find the fundamental pitch of the drum, just a tiny little boost. So just standard EQ moves that I would do on any recording for anyone. And then the mastering, typical mastering with multiband compression, just barely touching it in a limiter just to bring it all up and that's it so you're hearing what those drums sound like in this room um, there was something strange happening with the 13 it just sounded brighter I, but i can tell you i didn't change the mix at all i don't know if it was just the way that the mic was positioned on that drum but hopefully that gave you a kind of natural representation of what these different diameter drums sound like when just same drummer plays them in the same space with the same gear. Um, what are my observations and conclusions? I prefer smaller drums tuned lower for the feel and bigger drums, 14s and 15s. I like when you can tune them a little bit higher, you still get a bigger note, but you get a, a nice response for rolls. And also because the head is tighter, it's kind of 
eliminating some of the overtones, like a, a medium low tuned drum head will have just so many overtones, which on the 12, it was cool. I think also because the smaller drum, it, it just has less sound. So it, it can have some crazy overtones, but they kind of stay nice and tight. Whereas with the 15, if I would have done a medium low, it would just be so much sound going all over the place. Sometimes cool, but not, not always the best choice. Um, so I like bigger drums tuned a little bit higher. I can still get a big, big, you know, a deeper, you know, a, a, what's the right word? I can get the depth and, and lower note out of it, but because it has a little bit tighter, there's just a little bit more control and more rebound, which is probably counterintuitive. I think most people probably think a 12 is meant to be cranked. A 15 is meant to be down in the, the guttural region, which the 15 will do that fantastic as well. And we'll talk about that in a later episode. But it was kind of the opposite. I felt like they, they wanted to, they almost wanted to balance each other out. The smaller drum wanted to be tuned lower. The bigger drum wanted to be tuned higher to find like the perfect, like happy medium between the two. That said, take a 12, crank it. You'll never get that sound out of a 15. Take a 15, barely put any attention on it. You'll never get that sound out of a 12. So I think it's really all about what, you know, what you what you're looking for. Um, but the 12 is more versatile than I expect, and same with the 15. So I think if, obviously everyone has to have a good 14-inch drum, and maybe a 13. But for me, 14, 12. And a 15, like the 13 seemed to be the one that I would maybe leave out of the mix. I feel like the 12 and the 14 can kind of cover for me. So 12, 14, 15 would be my my preferences. So anyway, that's just a quick demonstration of what, what the diameter of a, of a snare drum can do for you. Um, we'll come back next week and, you know, a different topic. I'm not sure which, which way we're going to go because we could talk about shell types, metals, shell types, wood depth of the shells um, we definitely want to look at what all the different hoops do where it's you know whether it's single flange double flange triple flange die cast um, what do the snare wires do i've already recorded a ton of videos comparing all the different snare wires um, so there's a bunch of we're going to go we're going to take this everything you need to know about snare drum as far as it needs to go um, so hope you dig it and let's move on all right now it's time to get to the first part of my interview with stella moskawa and Brian, a.k.a. Boom Bip. They are the collaborative duo Belief. I got to see them perform as a duo at the Capitol Turnaround in Washington, D.C. a few weeks back. And it was the first time I've been to a show to see electronic music performed live. They were set up on, with a table. They each had a station. There was, it, it seemed like a lot of actual improvised interaction with mixing and layering in different programming and things. Very cool show. Sel is also the drummer of the band Warpaint, who's, again, a fantastic band. Highly recommend check them out. So if, if either one of these projects, Warpaint or uh, Belief, is coming near you, definitely go check them out. It's some really, really creative stuff. So this interview, it's the first time I've done a double interview, and I wanted to just get you know, dig into the process of how do you create electronic music, um, what are their thoughts on composing, when is the song finished, how do they do it live? All that kind of stuff. So here's part one with Stella and Brian of Belief. 
Forks Drum Closet, Nashville's full-line drum store. Celebrating its 40th year in business, Forks is independently owned and operated in the heart of Music City. Specializing in drums and percussion, Forks offers great discounts on all major brands and will beat any retailer's advertised price. From new and used equipment, vintage drums, and marching and orchestral instruments, Forks has something for every drummer. They also offer professional rental, repair, and restoration services, as well as drum lessons. Stop by their storefront at 308 Chestnut Street in Nashville, Tennessee, or call 615-383-8343, or go online at ForksDrumCloset.com. All right, so I did see you guys at the um, the DC show, the Capital Turnaround. Oh, wow. A couple of oh, weeks nice. ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so is this the first time you guys have performed live? as a duo like this recent tour no we've we've been doing we had this project was called beef before it was called belief and we i don't know we probably did maybe five or six live sets together as Mm -hmm. beef uh, we didn't have songs at that time though so it was we would just kind of hook up the machines and just improvise and so these shows that you're that 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 you that, yeah the show that you caught is really the first time we attempted to play songs it was not an uh, improv set mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but yeah, yeah we've, we've we've been we've been playing together for a little bit yeah, and while we were doing those improvised sets earlier, we were in the process of making the album. And I think every time we tried to marry those things before the record was done, it felt like we were rushing it. And we were, we were kind of enjoying the, the jam quality of doing these improvised electronic sets. And it was I feel like it was good training for us to then get into the studio and, and mm-hmm. um, generate new ideas. So... Yeah, it was, um, I think they kind of, they, the two worlds influenced each other looking back. So how much of your live set now is still improvised versus adhering to what's on the record? Quite mm. a bit. I mean, the, yeah. the like, the, uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it changed every night, but what Stella's doing on the um, TRA is pretty much all still improvised. I mean, you have kit sounds that you have saved. Yeah. So we kind know of what, switch, what least... Yeah. Switching between, um, sounds that are relevant to the songs that we play, but the act, the builds, the effects, the dynamics of things, how hard we go. Like that's, that's all a feeling that's all improvised. Yeah. Um, we don't really, I mean, we've definitely gone through moments of, of being um, frustrated with technology or frustrated with the, the interplay between machines not quite working the way that we want them to and just thinking, God, it's, it would, I remember, Brian, you texted me and you're like, wouldn't it just be so much easier if we did what most people do when they do a kind of electronic set and just kind of DJ off CDJs or just play a pre-recorded thing? Not that everybody does that, but I think there's... You know, there's there's a um, there's definitely a leniency with with um, playing or DJing, you know, pre-recorded things and and live mixing them together. But um, I think it takes all of the fun away um, uh, for us. And I think it then I think we're honouring that work that we put in 
in the early days with improvising and kind of feeling things out and you still, you know, you get off stage and you can have that feeling that you do when you're playing in a band, which is like tonight was really good, you know, tonight yeah. felt like we, we hit all the marks and it kind of we flowed really well and the things that, you know, if we felt a dynamic shift together without speaking, that's a really satisfying, exciting moment. It's like a, ba- mm-hmm. a bass player and they are changing at the same time and kind of being shocked that you both had the same idea at the same moment. That kind of stuff still happens with our setup. And so, um, yeah, we try and retain as much of that as we can. Are you yeah, using Ableton Live to give you any kind of um, background? Like how do you, what is, if you're improvising, the arrangement's going to evolve. So is, is it live as your template? Yeah, we use, we use live as the main clock. And what I have in there are mostly the bass lines from the tracks, the stems from the tracks, uh, mainly because they're repetitive. And to just sit there and play the same thing over and over and over with, you know, electronic music is is not exciting. So it made sense to kind of can the bass lines in Ableton. But we have them kind of set up as long loops. That way there's no really set time of when the song starts or ends. And so we're just triggering loops. And then Ableton feeds MIDI out into that role on SBX. And then from there out to the various machines. Mm. Yeah, I um, uh, managed to get this. didn't even really think how special it was, but this, this great bit of kit. Um, the Roland SBX1, I think it's called. It's kind of really hard to find now. I think they discontinued it, right, Brian? You were trying to find one. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was trying to pick one up. They used to be like 250 bucks, and now mm. they're they're going for like a grand, if you can find them. Yeah. And I don't think Roland had any intention of creating this incredible device. It seems like one of those accidental, legendary mm-hmm. wow. creations that just no one else makes it so i have no idea why they stopped making something that they're the only ones that manufacture you know i mean there's demand for it yeah it's like uh, you know the the other option is like the kenton pro solo and that kind of stuff but um it's really no it's a it's a sync box it's really Mm -hmm. utilitarian it's basically um the it's got MIDI in, MIDI out, USB in, um, CV in, and then I think it also has. I'm not sure if it has the Korg Hertz voltage split thing that you can actually. I haven't I haven't looked into that, but it has a lot of sync opportunities, and it's yeah. part of the the like. I think it was called the Ira, not the Aria, but the Ira, like the first TR8 that came out a couple of years ago, like that weird kind of like neon greeny, really bright aesthetic. It's part of, it's part of that line. And it was basically, it's just like an amazing, really um, solid uh, sync box between, oh, it has DIN sync as well. So it can sync to 606 and the 303. Which is why we use it. Yeah. It's just like, it's extraordinarily useful. Um, it was so cheap. It was, I didn't even think twice about buying it. I was like, oh, this seems great. I just want a little MIDI sync box or something that I can use with my 606. And then it just, they just kind of stopped making it. But it's really useful for us because sometimes 
when if certain things aren't necessarily clocking on the one when we play there's like the, basically this reset button that you hold it and it will start the loop again and it has an inbuilt shuffle as well so you can just shuffle every single device that's mm-hmm. um that's plugged into it and i just can't think of many things that have that like you know you don't have mm-hmm. to menu dive too much it's just everything's right there on the screen it's it's like it's a little magic box we kind of already led me down this, but let's do a rig rundown. What's yeah. what? What are each of you doing live? What is your your instrument? It keeps changing, but for this the tour that you saw, we really just because of travel and mm-hmm. space, we need to really size it down. So, um, I was using a Korg Monolog, uh, which I would play tons out of that into into the Tascam model 12 mixer is what we use as kind of our head but the, i i personally was playing the chord monologue and then the chord monologue with through midi was playing synths and ableton and then i used to push two to change any of the parameters of the soft synths that i was using in ableton um and the push two also triggers the loops and song changes and then uh, I typically use a 303 double fish, Roland 303 double fish mod uh, for the 303. And um, oh, there's a great pedal of Stella's. I guess you could call it a pedal. That's the Neon Egg. What's it called? Planetarium. 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 Yeah, this guy in the UK makes it. They're amazing, amazing pedals. They, oh man, I've actually got our case here. I can show you. <laughs> cool. <laughs> it's sitting right next to me. I, I, think, I think this is the case. But, yeah. But I run that. I run that through a. Oh yeah, there you go. Oh look at that! That's wild. Yeah, cool. So, so on the left, the white are is the reverb, blue is the echo, and pink is the compressor. And what's really great is I run. Out of the Tascam 12, I run the kick drum, because we have the kick on a separate channel out of the TR8, uh, into that compressor, and you get, like, sidechain compression live. So it's really pumping. So it gives it, like, a nice... Yeah, nice and it sidechains side the, the effects as well. So you can have the reverb sidechaining as well as mm-hmm. the pump that you would just naturally get from sidechaining the rest of the, the signals. It's, a, it's an amazing, amazing pedal. Um, he definitely and that's still what, makes and that's when I run my yeah I run my soft through that which gives it way more a better feel so it's running out of Ableton I'm controlling it with the push and, and the cord but as it goes through that the planetarium and then back into the mixer it really just gives all the soft sense like a much bigger feel and you can you know with those effects you can really um, get some really nice textures and stuff going. Mm-hmm. Is that what you had That's between you? Effects. Was that set up between you so you both could mess with it? There was, I feel like there was something you were both. That was, tweaking. that was, um, that was the model 12. So that has built in reverb as well. So you can kind of, you can adjust compression on that one. Cause most, I think all the channels have compression or the one knob thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then mm-hmm. it's got like just the aux sense. So you can run different effects through it. The neon egg there was just is. being uh, run. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
that thing's really great. And the great thing about that as well is that we can record all our sets um, without a computer. So even if we didn't have Ableton and we were just doing like a doorless setup, um, it records to micro SD the whole set. And we keep joking that like in an emergency, we'd just press play on the last set that we did and just kind of fake it. Um, well, the, the cool thing is that it records, it multi-track records. Yes. Yeah. That's what that's what amazed me. It's not just recording like a master master mm-hmm. channel. Yeah, it's recording each individual channel. So when you do a playback, you've got your faders, and mm-hmm. like worst case scenario, you've got an older set. You play with your faders and effects, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know you can still put a show together and kind of it's a nice little safety net. But it's it's it has so many features. It's a really I'm really impressed with that. Yeah, that yeah, it's amazing. The sixteen. <laughs> The twelve one is like I think digital, but the the sixteen and the twenty four are all completely analog, so you can do the same thing. But we just wanted like you know those techno tables that they always set up for like a kind of electronic set. We just wanted everything to fit really well on that, so we don't have things like hanging off or being taped onto the table or whatever. So that one works really well. And then I for these sets just um, paired down to a single drum machine which is the Roland TR8S um, and you can you can import a lot of your own samples into it and then it just has like the standard step se- sequencing stuff but it's got a lot more variation than just like a standard 808 or 909 clone because um, it's got like f- per pattern there's f- six variations maybe even more it's like ABCDEFGH Eight. So you can really, yeah, it's got eight. You can build each pattern incrementally um, and it's got motion record and things like that. It's a really amazing, powerful drum machine. And we used to, I used to also um, have an MFB Tanspar, which is actually somewhere in Brian's studio right now, and that was kind of my second secondary drum machine. It's like mm-hmm. all analogue really, like, really unique sounding drum machine um but it's like it's half broken right now so we didn't we decided not to go on tour i like the the frame of the drum machine sunken into the thing so like i have to like press really hard on these tiny little buttons that are (laughs) half the size of my fingertip to get like to switch between patterns and stuff and it was almost worth it because it is such a cool sounding drum machine yeah. um great great hi-hats so good like, like the clacky yeah. stuff on it is so mm-hmm. really really nice <clears throat> but yeah for this for this round we we just went with the tr8 i think for next any next shows that we do i probably i think we missed that extra like um i, 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 just, I don't think we've i don't think we've ever had the same gear except for this mm. tour every single time we would play before we would bring new gear into it. Cause we've yeah. used the six of six before mm-hmm. cause we have, I have a six of six devil fish that we've used, mm-hmm. you, you know, the, the Tansa bar we've used filter I pedals, uh, oh, yeah. different guitar pedals, distortion pedals, fuzz mm-hmm. pedals. Like we just keep adding and playing with stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We had my MPC 1000 for a long time. That was kind of, that was the MIDI hub for a minute. And that was really cool, mm-hmm. but, um, I wouldn't mind going back to that actually. Yeah, it's just kind of 
what are the what are the sets like? What are we kind of trying to achieve? How long are the sets? How much space do we have on a table? All those things factor into what gear we mm. end up bringing for a particular show. Is there any rehearsal ahead of time? We a did bit. a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. We did we, have we, we, two we days have... or something before this tour. Yeah. Yeah. Two two days, a couple hours at a time. Yeah. Um, it's more what's like our rehearsal is not really learning the songs it's just kind of fine-tuning the tones and then once we get on stage then we can whatever happens happens you know mm -hmm. we don't want to there's no reason to really over rehearse it but mm -hmm. that was the thing when i told stella you know should we just be using doing what everyone else is doing and have a flash drive into a cdj <laughs> because yeah. you know when you're running all this gear through a submix on stage you know, you don't have that mixed sound that you have on the record. Like some of the drums, like that snare might come out of the TRA that sounds great in the studio. And then in a live venue, it's just splitting Too your nice. head in half. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. there's nothing to really tone it down. And, and that was happening a lot because we were, you know, there are a lot of drum sounds and, and whatnot uh, mm -hmm. within the set. So that, that makes me nervous. And so the rehearsals were mainly about let's try to get the volume levels at mm. the right space. Let's make sure like these tones all sound good together. And then, you know, whatever happens where, you know, it's, it's great because, uh, you know, you've, if you've got things, if your machines are working and the clock is running, it really allows you to just have fun at mm. that point. So you're not stressed out on trying to hit the right note or, mm. you know, How's stop this going to sound. Yeah. How's this one instrument going to sound once I bring it in? That's always like the most stressful thing is like, here comes the drop and I'm bringing it back in. And then it just mm -hmm. sounds like bonkers. You know? <laughs> what are, are your things, individual roles on stage? Um, I, I would say it's pretty uh, stage versus when we were making the records, pretty different on stage. I stick primarily to the drum programming and the drum machines and the effects that are associated with that. And Brian primarily deals with the melodic information and the bass. So we do that kind of conventional split live, but that was definitely not the case in the studio. I think we exchanged roles pretty, um, like, fluidly, you know. It was, mm. it was a fluid exchange of just kind of ideas or or tracks and it wasn't like well you just you stay in your lane and i'll stay in mine and we'll collaborate like that it was very much like um a lot more free but i think it would be confusing if i was like i think when you're in the improvised moment to be worrying about what's going on with this like polysynth while you're bringing back a kick drum or changing the drum pattern or whatever it's kind of it is really nice to stay in the lane when we're mm -hmm. performing live um, and just trust each other that we're, it's going to it's going to sound great together. But individually, we're kind of doing our our job. Do you remember? Concept, the... I, can't do, I can't do what you do on the drum machine. I, I can't. I'm not capable of your. It's, Stella's very good at <laughs> programming drums. You know, so are you. it's very humbling for me. I know, but then when I see you, I'm like, holy shit! I got a <laughs> I got a ways to go here. You know, it's just very. 
like I love the way that you use the like the motion controls and stuff. I I can like get some stuff, but it feels stiff. Where you can you can take a drum machine and you can make it sound like a human is behind it. I don't really have that, so it's nice that you that's your that's your job. Yeah, I mean Brian is doing to be fair so much more than I am on stage when I do watch like all the things that you're dealing with. So you're like, I have to change the three hundred three pattern, and I've got to. Um, launch the clips from Ableton. It's like um, there's so much going on, and I definitely couldn't do his job either. Especially like programming a 303 is just like I, I still don't understand how it's done. I've watched a few videos like from the the 303 clones and stuff, and it's still um, quite confusing to me. It's like it doesn't make any it doesn't make any sense. No, it's, it's really it's counterintuitive instrument, but that's kind of what makes it so fascinating because these things happen sometimes that are a little bit accidental. Even if, you know, you can be in the same key, but then like this one thing that you've accidentally programmed would just be the thing that makes it so unique and special. Do you remember the first thing you ever played together? Uh, as as this project or just as two as humans a, playing uh, music? That's a good question. How about yeah. both? <laughs> um, I'll say the first, I'm trying to think the first time we ever played music. Was that in what? any way before I, Neon Neon? Was it with, um, no, I think it might have been Neon Neon, really. I, I think we we did that the more project but i don't think we were ever together on that you were doing stuff and then i was i came in and did percussion work for them yeah we did a lot of the same we we played played a lot of the same shows but i don't think we played the same in the same bands till the neon neon Neon. stuff yeah yeah and what was that project were you playing traditional drum set stella yeah that's brian's project it's a band that him and uh, Gruff from um, Super Furry Animals. They have a project that, how many records did you guys make? Two. Couple of records. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so she the one. toured on the second one, the second album. We She did West Coast Dates with us. Um, it was like Stella and Kate LeBon and uh, Griff. Yeah and me and Hugh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, I guess the rehearsals are probably that that's probably the first time we played together mm. just sitting down, which is funny to think. It's so weird. I don't know if that's, I think that's, I true, that's true, but it either. feels strange just because we knew each other quite well at that point and we were friends. Yeah. So it wasn't like this. It didn't feel very new necessarily, but, um, yeah. We've probably seen each other play so much in the same room that it just yeah. felt like we had played together. Yeah, in bands for years. So, Brian, yeah, what, were yeah. you, what was Neon Neon? You were playing guitar, singing? What was your role in that? Uh, it changed. I mean, it's with the records, I, I made most of the music, and then Grip would sing and then add you know, guitar at times to it. Um, but live on stage, I played, oh gosh, it switched. I would do either bass or like the more electronic drums. I'd play on like an SPDS with 
Tom. I think on that particular tour with Stella, I think I was just doing. I don't know what You're I was doing. Synths, what was I doing? I, I guess You're playing synths. Oh, synths. Yeah. yeah, of course. I was doing. Yeah. I was doing the synths. Mm -hmm. So it's it changed. Like the first record, I was mainly playing bass, and then um, second record, mainly synths and drum machines and stuff. But we, you know, Stella, we always had a live drummer with with that project. So when did the two of you decide to try electronic music? Um, that was probably. 2015 ish, 16 ish. Yeah. What? Yeah. When do we set I mean, up? In, we, in absolutely 20, I feel like it might have been 2016. Because I, I, I think I was still, yeah. I was in and out of recording that third wall paint record in LA. So yeah. I feel like, I feel like that was, yeah, that makes sense. May 2016. The story, yeah. Yeah, I think 2016. The story with that was we originally were making this record, the beef record, with our friend Eric Wareheim, who's of Tim and Eric, like part of the comedy duo. Mm -hmm. And Tim and Eric have this, they have this really great space that they just weren't using. And uh, Eric was invited us. He's like, come set up your gear. Like, we're all summer there's really nothing happening in here so come on in and that'll be easy for me to come over and like help you guys or assist in it and so yeah. Stella and I we it was pretty funny because we I think we had this idea that we were just going to knock the record out maybe in that couple month period so we brought <laughs> so much stuff in we had all of our guitars all and bases and drum kit yeah <laughs> it's yeah. just this big circle of gear, like tons of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so Stella and I would go in and that was really the first playing together with mm -hmm. electronic stuff. And even I do, I remember it very well. Like the first time we played, it was so much fun because we didn't have to really communicate and we were hitting changes and stuff already. And everything was super tasteful mm -hmm. and we recorded all of these we recorded the fully analog um, you know, we have hours of those absolutely film studio sessions. Yeah, it was all stereo, which were really fun as well. Like we just summed everything. So when later on we we're like, oh, wouldn't this be cool if we could take out the kick? And it was like, no, you can't. Do it. It, just, <laughs> it is what yeah, it is. No. But we ended up sampling a lot of that. Actually, I remember. I know. I remember when we, we had that that record. I mean, the song didn't make it on the record, but it was on the record for a bit. The crunch one had that like drum loop that we put through oh, yeah. the amp and stuff like that. I'm sure there's mm -hmm. stuff from those sessions that made it on the record as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think different sounds. Yeah. I think prior to that, obviously Brian has made several records in, I guess what you would call the electronic genre. And I was doing, was always interested in electronic music and also had kind of done a lot of programming for my band and for other productions and stuff like that. So it didn't really feel like, oh, this is our, like, this is some like harebrained idea that we've had. It's cute little like, you know, hobby project with a friend. Um, it kind of felt like we both were really hungry to do something like this and didn't really have a vehicle for it necessarily. And I know, I'm sure, you know, Brian 
has like a great output of music, but sometimes that maybe doesn't fit in with a solo project or with Boom Bip or or Neon Neon or mm. something else. And, you know, I think we were talking always about just the, the songs we kind of had left over and things started sharing music that we had made and and felt like we were on the same page with our influences and things like that. And, you know, um, yeah, to me that was kind of, that was the origin. It wasn't just like this big shift between playing in, in Brian's band and just being primarily a um, musician, a drummer, and then switching to this like brand new territory. I feel like I've been microdosing um, electronic music for, for like a good 10 years before that and like collecting all these drum machines and synths and you know, making music pretty much just for myself. I mean, some of those instruments make it onto wall paint records or some of those ideas make it onto other records. But, um, yeah, I kind of, um, I, I really wanted some place to put that music, you know, and the idea of doing it with someone um, that I respected and, and whose music I, I really loved was just felt like a no-brainer, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think... I think- Early on, too, we liked the idea of a duet because when we were sharing music, we were mm-hmm. sharing a lot of late 80s, early 90s warp record type bands. So, like LFO or 808 All Techer. Mm-hmm. Like, there's that, that electronic duet. And mm-hmm. that dynamic seems to work really well. And I know you and I had a love for that. And so. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I it was it was really fun to just be like, let's let's do that. Let's hook up some old machines and mm-hmm. see what happens. Yeah, and it kind of it, I I'm sh- I'm sure Brian deals with this a lot. And I kind of when I was just messing around making music for myself, it gets a little bit lonely when you're making kind of cold electronic music on your own. <laughs> it almost makes the experience colder, and it influences the music in a way. I think it's really fun just just to have somebody else that you're doing it with that feels more like a band without the stress of like multiple extreme personalities or with an opinion. It's like this really streamlined way to have a like a collaborative musical experience. Definitely. I'm very familiar with the lonely Lonely boy records. <laughs> That's all I've ever done. Lonely boy. <laughs> Lonely sad boy electronic music. That's my genre right there. <laughs> so did it did collaborating feel like a breath of fresh air? Did you have to kind of learn how to do it? I mean, just if you're not used to doing it. Did. it. Well, I did it with Griff, you know. So I had I had the neon neon thing and then we brought in a lot of guests. But, you know, for me, it's it's like a palate cleanser almost like every, let's say, two solo records. I'm just lonely. It's like I need somebody else in here to collaborate with. And so mm-hmm. I've had. Yeah, I've had those those projects. I would say like, yeah, every couple of records, I got to collaborate with somebody and that to balance it out. That feels nice. But now I'm getting ready to go into the, like doing a solo record. And I'm kind of looking forward to that again. But I also can't wait to record with Stella again because I know we just have so many ideas and mm-hmm. gear that we're excited about to kind of dig into and so yeah 
All right, let's change gears a bit. We're going to jump into a quick lesson here. This is part of an ongoing series that Tom Went, who's been guest hosting the show here a few times over the past couple of months, he's been doing some jazz drumming essentials lessons for us. So we're going to start with lesson one, the quarter note. Hey folks, Thomas Went here for Drum Factory Direct. Thank you so much for joining us today. This series is going to deal with some of the basic fundamentals of playing the American drum set in American jazz music. Now some people call it jazz, some people call it black American music, some people call it black classical music. Whatever label you want to use, it is distinctly American music. Now, whether you're a drummer who's been playing for a while and is interested in getting into this kind of music, or if you're just a young student who's just coming to the drums in general, I hope this short series will help you get into the music. Okay, so to get started with this today, we're going to begin by working on what's probably the most important part of playing this kind of music, or really any kind of music on the drums, and that is we need to begin to assimilate and internalize the general pulse and feeling of this music. Now there's a lot of different ways that you can work on this, but one of the easiest and most effective ways that I've found is to find a really great classic recording with a great rhythm section and begin to play along with that. Now we're going to be doing this in a really simple way. We're basically just going to be playing the quarter note pulse along with the recording. Now I should mention that playing jazz in 2022 when you're playing the basic groove of the music, you're really going to be using the cymbal, the bass drum, and the hi-hat. Now, if you're going to be playing jazz that goes all the way back to the 1920s or even before, the timekeeping is a little bit different. That's for another video. But today, most of the time when you play this music on the drums, you're going to use the cymbal, the bass drum, and the hi-hat. What I would recommend is grab those headphones and put on a classic recording of this music obviously picking a tempo that's not too slow and not too fast. And as I said, we're basically going to be just playing the quarter note pulse. And what I mean by that is you're going to be playing quarter notes on the ride cymbal, quarter notes on the bass drum, but just feathering real lightly, more on that later, and the hi-hat on two and four with your foot. Something like this. Pretty simple, right? Not that big of a deal playing-wise, but the most important part of this is that, as I said before, you begin to assimilate and internalize the feeling of the music. So while you're practicing, what you need to do is you need to sort of see how the cymbal and really everything that you're doing is interacting with the other members of the band on the recording, right? Check out how the cymbal, the, just the quarter notes on the cymbal, are interacting with the bassist the pianist or guitarist who might be comping, the horn players, or maybe a singer, depending on the recording. Check out how your role in the music is interacting with the other members of the band. This is how you're going to begin to sort of, as I call it, find your spot in the mix. 
is really the most important part of playing this or any kind of music. In the next video installment, We'll talk about the bass drum and the hi-hat. You heard me mentioning the term feathering the bass drum, just playing very, very light quarter note pulse on the bass drum. We'll talk about that and the hi-hat in the next video. Thanks again for hanging out. See you guys soon. So let's move on to our shop talk segment. So I'm over at Hawthorne. I filmed this a few weeks back, but I held it for this, for this debut episode. Over at Hawthorne Drum Shop, he had a couple different Ludwig kits, and I've always been confused on how the models of, of 60s, 70s Ludwigs were named. So we're going to kind of dig in a little bit on what is a what is a Hollywood kit, what is a classic kit. And let's check it out. Some vintage Ludwigs with Chris Hawthorne at Hawthorne Drum Shop. All right, let's talk about 1970s Ludwig. So what is this particular setup It's that we're looking at here? So this configuration or outfit is a Hollywood outfit. So... 14 by 22, 8 by 12, 9 by 13, and 16 by 16. Um, you could order these with other size bass drums, so, mm. you know. And would eight, still be called a Hollywood? Yeah, they, they would go mainly by, like, the, the two up. That's usually what the, what's determined. Oh. Now, you can also get, they also had, I have a kit in the back, actually, that had two rails. So a rail here. Rail here. Weird. Up. I don't know what you would call that. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> Whatever I would call it would be wrong according to people on the internet. So. <laughs> but this is a '70s kit, which the is the telltale is by the Blue Olive badge, right? Yeah. And, yep. um, now they did have, they did have like transition era kits that were like 1969, 1970, where their badges are mixed. And mm -hmm. It was ordered together, and it was just like they ran out of. I don't know if I was a customer, I'd be mad. Yeah, that's a that's <laughs> not cool. <laughs> but yeah, now they also had another configuration that was called the Big Beat that was also the same sizes, two up. And it was called the Big Beat because it had a different set of hardware. I think they were thicker, like Hercules stands. That's confusing. Yeah, I just call all these Hollywood. So the configuration has a name. What is the series referred to as? Um, I just would call these classic. Classic. Like, yeah. So what would be a super classic? Super classic has a rail. Oh my god. <laughs> so that'd be a super, super classic, the one with your two rails? Yeah, double rail. <laughs> super, super classic. They also had a super beat, Mike, and that was an uncatalogued. I don't think it's in a catalog. It was a 20, well, it was a 13, 20, and a 16 with a rail. And people just name it that because it's a, it's a combination of the big beat and the, or the down beat and the super classic, excuse me. The down beat's the 14. <laughs> At uh, 14, tw uh, 12, 20. All right, let's go through all the, all the setups again that you know of. What would be the the jazz kit? Like jazzette. A now, a jazzette is not a jazzette if it has a 14-inch <laughs> bass drum. <laughs> what? Yeah. I don't care. But, yeah, <laughs> jazzette had a rail on top, and it was an 18-inch kick that was 12 inches deep. And it had a 12 and a 14. Okay. But they also had many that were an 18 by 14. Yeah. That's not a jazzette. What is it? I don't know. <laughs> According to the catalog, that's not a jazzette. So what's a downbeat then? A downbeat <laughs> is a 2012-14 with a rail. Okay. Big beat. Same, same as this with different hardware. It's like different stands. Oh, man. I don't, I don't care about like, this catalog stuff. It's not. I think it's stupid. So what, is, what defines a classic? It's a three-ply shell. Usually... Maple, poplar maple, but if it's a wrap, maybe it's mahogany on the outside. Right? Is that um, right? 
you will occasionally get a 70s drum that's a mahogany on the inside. They're usually really clean and they're cool to find. Mm -hmm. But you know, for the most part, this is earlier to mid-70s. All the drums are three-ply with clear interiors. I think like around 1975 or 76, they would start spraying it with a granitone. Mm. I don't know why they did that. Okay. But. And then the white interiors would have been 60s? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think around 1968 is when they stopped doing the white. Okay. So you'll get some 60s drums that have clear interiors, and they mm -hmm. look pretty much like this. But they didn't, you know, the series-wise, correct me if I'm wrong, anybody out there, but <laughs> this is pretty much what they made. You know, they, they had the standard series, which we've done, which are B-stock versions of these shells, but I mean, this is, this is it. And then they came out with the Rocker series, which mm. is a four-ply, and then the cheaper Rockers, you know, later on. But this was kind of like, and what you is, wanted a Ludwig, this is what you got. What is the Center Lug series? Oh, those are club dates. Club dates. And those were, I've seen 70s club dates, but mostly in the 60s. Oh, uh, okay. But still and, same shells, right? Three yeah. ply? Oh, I'd they were, shells. Well, that's kind of how they were dealing with the pricing. So, like, less hardware, cheaper, which mm -hmm. is interesting because people historically have like kind of shied away from this because they view them as cheaper because they were more cheaper mm -hmm. but it's less hardware so think about that in terms of like actually what's attached to a shell mm -hmm. and allowing it to ring and kind of resonate more so yeah i guess the only thing that scares me with the the downbeats right is mm -hmm. the long lugs just getting bent but that, that's that's a club date club dates right so club you would date. have a bass drum and then you're like whoop yeah yeah. But they always it's a lot. Great. It's a lot of lug. Mm -hmm. you know? So this like red finish is, is how rare is it these, these days? Um, it's rare. Out of like the kind of psychedelic finishes, there was psych red, there was mod orange, and there was citrus mod. Um, out of the three, this is the most common. Oh, it is. Also the most tiresome. <laughs> you don't like this finish? I like it, but I think after a few weeks of using it, I'll be like, all right, where's my black drums? <laughs> Some people are like, I think it's cool. I mean, the variation in patterns is, is really cool. Like the, the bass drum on this is really blue. If you go on our website, you can see kind of the, the photos on it. It's really blue. Yeah, it is. Sometimes you'll have ones that are really green, really like this is really red. Um, this is kind of some green in it, and these will fade really easy. Sometimes mm. the, the green will like turn to white, so it's like a red, white, and blue. Interesting. I think looks pretty cool, but... Pretty trippy. Um, some people don't like that. Well, you get a little bit on the hoop, you can see it. So when we got this, it was um, pretty much as is. It didn't have any bottom heads, um, no front bass drum hoop. The back bass drum hoop was just like a modern replacement, so mm. we use original 70s. Ludwig hoops, and we had some donor wrap. We cut the inlay out, glued it back in. So uh, it, it fits pretty well. I mean, it's, it's a little more faded, but um, that is original 70s psych ride. Um, and all the drums were in round, too, which is nice, because a lot of times when... <laughs> I guess I've heard, I've heard it referred to as riding dirty <laughs> without bottom heads. Oh, without the bottom heads. Yeah. yeah They'll yeah. kind of, like, get out of round, but they all they sound really good, too. Now... We were talking, I think, last week a little bit about spurs. Are these the thinner ones? Those are the skinny spurs that I would love for somebody to reproduce. <laughs> so so if you're they... out there and want to reproduce Ludwig's, it's literally just a curved piece of metal. I will buy 10 sets. <laughs> so when did they go to the thicker ones? 
probably later. I know like most 80s kits have thicker ones, but I've also seen Vistalites that have the thicker spurs too. Yeah, mine does. And they're not, they don't, they don't seat very well. They don't tighten in. It was one of those, I think, quality things for whatever reason. A lot, sometimes you'll see, I don't know if the drums were heavier, but you have like the thicker spurs. And then wherever the wing nut goes in, it'll just kind of like get all gnarled and bent. Mm -hmm. But These are solid. Yeah, they're good, man. You get this set up like, I like these a little bit better than the Gullwing ones. I think that they're mm. a little bit better for dumb people like me who don't have to like worry. I can just stick them in and make sure. <laughs> right. Yeah, the Gullwings don't go high enough for me because I, I'm a freak and I like to elevate the bass drum just a little bit off the ground. Now, it, it sucks when you get one of these bass drums and they, I think that they made different lengths of those spurs. Mm. Like you're finishing up and the last thing you do is put the spurs in and they don't touch the ground. That's what I have on my, my 68. Yep. That's they don't fun. touch. Yeah. <laughs> have to like force them in a bit. Anyway, again, repeat what this is for everyone who's completely confused. Hollywood. Ludwig Hollywood, which yep. means two up, one down, and a bass drum. They can be different bass drums. Simple as that. Simple as that. Let's move on to a different kit. All right. I'm going to take a guess. This is... A super classic downbeat. No, it's just a super classic. Super classic downbeat. <laughs> just a super classic, yeah. 13 by, a 9 by 13, 14 by 22, and 16 by 16. <laughs> it's not a super super. It's, so what makes it super is this not super, but cool. Real console, yeah. Um, what else makes it a super? That's it. That's it? Just that? Now, if you had... A if you had like a diamond plate on the middle, like that one over there, it was a 9 by 13. Mm -hmm. And I think I've had a few of those that look like they're factory. I mean, you could call it a super classic, but technically it's not because of the rail. So, also, there's not a, I just noticed there's not a simple mount on this. Usually there's a simple mount over there. So, if it was a 13, 16, 22 with a center mount, you would still call that a super classic? No. What would you call it? I mean, it? I would, but yeah, but like technically, that is. You would get yelled at. What is it? drum kit. <laughs> I would call it a super classic in quotations. Okay. So if anybody emailed me, I'd say, well, it's in quotations. <laughs> what year is this particular kit? Um, I don't know the exact year. One, three, probably like 74, 73. Okay. So it's got they, the same thing, clear yeah, interiors. There's a serial chart online, mm. but I don't, I don't know if it's right or not. So unless there's like date stamps on the inside I just say the the era mm-hmm and what is this this is I'm used to seeing sparkles but this is not yeah a it's red finish. silk red silk I used to not like this finish for whatever reason but it's sharp they made a red and a blue hmm. um, it's a fragile wrap and a lot of times you'll see cracking and splitting at the seams but these are all pretty clean we did re-glue the seams on all the drums which is my least favorite thing to do but no cracks in the wrap. There is some wear. Um, sharp, sharp looking finish, if you ask me. So is this the same wrap, like the blue? Would that be the same thing you'd see on a standard kit? The same blue, or is it different? No. It's a different blue. Standard blue. Like, these you did, they did Strata, they did Astro. They also did like a mist. So mm. that's, there's, a, there's a mist, and this is a silk. I don't know what the difference is. A mist is like, the wrap's thinner. It looks a little bit different. If you put them together, you could tell. Okay. Yeah, my uncle had a blue Ludwig kit. I don't know if it was one of these or if oh, it was. Oh, the mist has like it has. It, they're not quite sparkles. They're like it's almost like glitter. Hmm. 
but not like that's a bad example because red glass <laughs> glitter is like that one back there. Yeah. It's like real, like actual, like really small, like pieces of like glitter. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, my memory tells me he had just a blue, like it was just a blue, like this, but blue, but like a light blue. They did make those, and they well, oftentimes like green, turned like a hunter green. Mm. But they did like it was kind of if if it was clean, it was like pretty blue, mm-hmm. but not a, not quite a sparkle. Would this make it cheaper than a I don't know a black oyster pearl or something? Um, I don't know. I think wraps were just wraps. But I don't know. Would you price it differently? Yeah, now I would. Yeah. Um, this isn't like a rare finish, but usually, like for in the seventies, you'll see like. You know, champagne sparkle, silver sparkle. What are some of the other finishes? Gold sparkle. Mm-hmm. These weren't as common, but yeah, I wouldn't call them rare. So we'll probably price like fifteen hundred bucks for all three drums. And this has the same spurs as the other ones. Yeah, so the smaller. So don't. Same. Nothing's different, right? Same lugs, same T rods. The only thing different is this one piece of hardware. That's it. And one less drum, obviously. One less drum. I'm still confused. Hope you're all uh, educated. 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 I think it's all about whether you want a rail mount or not, right? And then the sizes. Yeah, convenience. I mean, the, when it comes down to it, it's like what makes you feel good behind a kit. Mm-hmm. Like you can make a big deal. Like this, that kit is way more expensive than this because of the wrap that's on there. Mm-hmm. You know, for some people, that's worth like sitting by. And be like, oh, this is this is, like so inspiring. I love this. Um, some people like are inspired by a rail and they, they mm-hmm. like it and they like having it there. Other people don't care. So it's whatever you personally care about and makes you feel good. There you have it. For me, it'd be all about the sound. So I'd probably go for this one just because it's it's going to be the same shells, but there a little bit cheaper. That'd be my choice. And well, you I have bad use, taste, Mike. I have terrible taste, <laughs> and I never use two rack toms ever. Not since high school. So you never use two rack toms? Mm-mm. I've tried. Puts and the I feel ride like in a weird spot. I just, what do you do with the other one? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do I really need that third tom <laughs> I went boom and boom and I'm good. Oh, and then you try to use it. You're like, oh, I'm going to use it. And then all your fills finish on the other <laughs> Anyway. Anyway, Ludwig Super versus Hollywood. Good job. There Super classic go. Hollywood. <laughs> all right. Perfect. <laughs> all right, it's time to get into some listener questions. If you have any questions at all about drums or drumming or the music industry in general, shoot them over to drumcandypodcast at gmail.com. I will be, this first batch I'll be answering myself, but I'm hoping to eventually start sending these out to previous guests to get their input as well. We'll see how that goes. But our first question here is from Mike Lomax. Mike says, I recently played a few gigs after having not played for over four years. From that, I discovered that hauling big, heavy drums and double brace hardware is a young man's game, no doubt. My question is, what's the best sounding but lightest shell material for smaller size drums? And what's the lightest, most stable hardware, including a hi-hat stand that can use with a double pedal? All right, let's start with the best sounding but lightest shell material for smaller size drums. Um, It's kind of hard to answer that specifically, but I mean, poplar and mahogany are going to be light you know a thinner shell a plywood shell is going to be lighter but really i think what adds the weight is going to be the hardware so 
I wouldn't go with die-cast hoops. I would go with lighter hardware, maybe some 1.6 triple flange hoops, um, and maybe not big solid brass lugs. Some of the die-cast stuff might be a little bit lighter, so you have to, you have to kind of look at and what's the tom mount situation on those drums and to look at more what's what's being put on the drum that could make it super heavy. I think as long as you're, you're playing a thin plywood shell drum, a, like a solid shell drum is going to be heavier than a, a plywood shell. You know, the shell itself is going to be pretty light. It's just all the other stuff that gets stuck onto it. So just look for the minimal hardware, maybe aluminum hardware, um, you know, small single point lugs, something like that. Definitely don't get die cast tubes. And then the second part of your question, what's the lightest but most stable hardware? Uh, I mean, the, the Yamaha Crosstown, I think that's a game changer. It's aluminum. I've seen a lot of the drummers here in Pittsburgh use it. I mean, it's that's kind of like the game changer. It's it looks it's normal size stands, but it's made of lightweight aluminum, so it's super super light. Um, I use the Tama Classic stands, but those are very thin, very lightweight. Not something. I mean, if you're playing double bass, that means you're probably hitting a little bit harder than I do. I don't know that those will be the right choice. So I would check out the Yamaha Crosstown. All right, the next question is from Jeff Costello. It is. The effect of depth on a snare drum sound. Um, I hate to tease this, but we're going to be covering this as a main topic in a future episode. So we will do some testing to see what does the depth of the snare drum do to the sound. I'll give you just a quick um, spoiler. If you think of speed of response, shallower is going to be faster, deeper is going to be slower. Volume thresh, you know, ceiling, a, a shallow drum is going to choke out faster than a super deep drum for you know the harder you hit but we're going to go into that in a deep dive in an upcoming episode so stay tuned all right this one unfortunately i forgot to write down who this came in from it was a response to an instagram story um, of asked me a question what is the easiest way to identify trouble frequencies slash standing waves in a room i asked my friend mark williams who owns a studio in dc what what he would recommend because he's having his room tuned now and i'd forgotten that there's there's a lot of advanced software for that so if you really really want to get your room tuned there's software and like a special microphone um, if you just search for you know room tuning software there's one direct live is when i just got up here you know, there's there's different options for that if you want to go like more professional like room correction what it does, it will it will balance your speakers out so that they're you know you're compensating for what the room might be doing. Now, if you want to just see, you know what what in your room kind of resonates louder than the rest, um, there's plenty of speaker test videos out there. So what I just found one. If you go to YouTube, it's just called "Test Your Speakers!" exclamation point by Doctor Mix. So you just play that through your your studio speakers. It just sends us a sine wave through the entire spectrum at the exact same amplitude, which means same volume. But as it hits certain frequencies that maybe your room resonates more, it's going to get a lot louder. And then it's going to disappear on some frequencies that maybe aren't as prominent. Um, so that's a, a good way to kind of see ballpark what, what pockets of frequencies might resonate more in your room. Um, so I'd recommend that. It's it's not a pleasant thing to have to listen to, but um, it is effective. That way you can just be aware of of what you know what 
drums might resonate more if they're in that frequency range. The big thing for me is finding where does the bass drum sound big and full in the space that I'm in, and then I can kind of deal with the rest. Most of the time I found the rack tom resonates um, in a smaller room, and the floor tom tends to get lost. So I have to always compensate for that. Hit the rack tom quieter, floor tom louder, lower the rack tom physically, so it's more kind of parallel with the snare and floor if it's really resonating. But check out the tester speakers. That's probably the good place to start without having to invest in any kind of crazy software. I've got two questions here from Glenn Stella. We're just, I'm going to answer one of them. We'll save one for next week. So the first one is, if you didn't opt for Ludwig, what hardware manufacturer, drum set, and snare would you play live or recording with? Um, what? I'm not sure I know. It says, what HW manufacturer drum set? If you didn't opt for Ludwig, uh, I wouldn't necessarily play vintage drums live. I don't. I don't like to use them live. They tend to be too muddy and and dull sounding i think that's why they work better in the studio because they're more controlled and darker sounding so you can you can dig into them more not having the drum overwhelm the space or the microphone uh, live i use bucks county drums almost exclusively or else it's just backline stuff whatever's available i've been using an oak kit that is really fantastic for live because the overtones are, are really tight and controlled so microphones just love them um, what else have I been taking out? That's been my live kit. And snare drum, I always take at least two drums with me, one metal, one wood, just so I can have options for different spaces, depending on the project. I tend to go with the same depth, but you know, one might be maple, one might be aluminum. If it's a you know more of a dynamic show where I gotta play quieter, it might be a five or a five and a half. If it's something where I'm gonna be hitting, it'll be two six and a halves. But I always take a wood and a metal and then assess what the room is giving me. Yeah, so that's it. For live, I check. I would use modern drums live, not vintage drums, in my personal opinion. They'll hold up better. They project better. They're easier to deal with. They're less temperamental. Um, yeah, I use Bucks County drums. All right, so that's it for listener questions. Thank you again. If you have any questions you want to have answered in the show, shoot them over to drumcandypodcast at gmail.com. All right, we are at the end of the show. I just have one more thing to mention here, but I appreciate you all uh, sticking with this pilot episode for season two. I have not done the talking directly into the camera thing for an hour. Uh, I need a drink of water. But the last chunk here, we're calling this warehouse pick of the week. Um, this was a few months ago. I put together this this kind of pre-head and wire pack. We were calling it the Evans Classic Snare Tune-Up Kit. And it came with, I got the drum right here. It's an Evans Strata 1000 batter head, which is typically a concert snare drum head, but it really looks like it looks and sounds like a calfskin head. It's thin. It's a thinner head with a light, a lighter kind of coating on it. And then the bottom side is Orchestral 200, which is a really thin bottom side head. Again, it's the extra hazy film. And then the Concert 16 snare wires. So 16 strands, uh, slightly looser spiral wires. Those are the pure sounds. So we, I think we put together a handful of those. Again, they're back on drumfactorydirect.com. This is one of my favorite combinations. I have this old vintage Slingerland three-ply drum 
that, you know, I liked it, but it just wasn't really giving me what I wanted it to give me, which was that real old school, raspy, dark, dry kind of sound. And then once I put these heads on it, Strata 1000, orche Orchestral 200, and then the darker sounding, less rattly Concert 16 snare wires, it's, it's sounds like an old bebop record to me. So I've got a, a demo here. We'll check that out now. So that's the Evans Classic Snare Tune-Up Kit. You can get that all prepackaged over at DroneFactorDirect.com. That is it for this week's episode. Thank you all for listening. And, um, yeah, again, I've said it a hundred times, but email me. Stay in contact. DrumCandyPodcast at gmail.com. Send in your intro beats. Send in your listener questions. Any and all feedback is highly um, appreciated. And we're going to let Mike Malone send us out. So see you next week. <laughs>